Hey friends, Cable here, and this week's podcast is proudly brought to you by my friends over at Kent Cartridge. Uh, I've got a man, I've got a lot of history with this brand, going back to my college days when I was waiting tables just to fund my duck hunting addiction. That's when I first discovered Kent, and uh, I'd mess around with other brands, cheaper brands, and literally watch the pellets bounce off of greenheads. Uh, I found Kent, and I fell in love. And nothing's changed over the last 20 years except for, well, I'd say Fast Steel 2.0 is even better than the original. And Kent offers a premium shell at a sub-premium price. Check it out. It's Fast Steel 2.0. You can find it at your local retailer. Howdy, everybody. This week's podcast also brought to you by Spartan Forge. Born in war, Spartan Forge was conceived while targeting terrorists Think about that, targeting bad guys during deployments in support of the global war on terror. We can also use this technology because of its similarities to track mature bucks. Now it's time to get this analysis into your hands. It's military-based intelligence, next generation mapping. I absolutely love it. And I love the people behind Spartan Forge. They're like me. Second Amendment till the day we die. No exceptions. America first. Spartan Forge. Check it out by downloading the app today. Down at Stagnan at the Prairie Rose A covered band for ten to close And my old man sitting right there Good morning, good morning, good morning. Little Mike in the Moon Pies kicking things off for us on, what are we at, episode 648 of SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by the good folks over at Mossberg Firearms. I'm Cable Smith. Thanks so much for being here today. It's a pleasure, a treat, an honor to be talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies with you fine folks. So, Thanks for dropping by. Um, we've got a good one lined up for you today. I'll tell you all about it momentarily, but um, hope you guys have had a chance to take the old stick and string out this archery season, uh, whether you've spent time out west or you're hitting up the deer lease. I'm actually kind of embarrassed to say that, you know, I spent nine days in Wyoming chasing elk, but I haven't bow hunted for whitetail one time yet this season. That's going to change on Thursday. My ass will be up in a tree in Oklahoma. But life's just been absolutely nuts. So busy. And and we didn't have that uh, we didn't have access to that property in time to set it up for bow season appropriately. Uh but got a little spot in some hardwoods now. That's looking pretty good. Old slickhead going to get a slick trick. That's what I'm looking forward to. Um, I, I did go out, though, to try to dove hunt uh, this past week. And I know most people, you know, when October rolls around, have already quit on the dove. But I got this new dog, little JoJo. And I I put a lot of miles on the truck and did not find diddly squat. I guess this, uh, this little cold snap, which I'm not complaining about. Absolutely love it. It feels like fall. I actually put on a sweatshirt the other day. Uh, but I guess that moved all the 
the dove out of the area for the most part. Uh, but anyway, big plans to uh, to put some venison on the ground this week. And I uh, hope that you're going to be doing the same. Rifle season will be here before we know it. Excited about that as well. Uh, I'll probably go out west for the uh, for the general season opener. Got a nice 10-point. Uh, I've got my eye on out there. Um, so what are we doing today? Let me tell you. You know what to do. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of that Black Rifle coffee out of Granddaddy's beat-up old Stanley Thermos because we are ready to rock and roll. And today, we will spend the entire show checking in with writer Mike Arnold. And here's why. He wrote this great book. And if you're interested in conservation and the sustainable use hunting method being implemented across the globe, then you're really going to enjoy this conversation. The book is called Bringing Back the Lions, International Hunters, Local Tribes People, and the Miraculous Rescue of a Doomed Ecosystem in Mozambique. And this place, uh, and, and this is in the famed uh, Zambezi Delta, that if you've read books about Africa or paid attention to the safari world, then you've probably heard of the Zambezi Delta. It is a lush, diverse ecosystem. But in this little corner of the world, in a place called Kutata 11, which is about a half a million acres, just to kind of put that in perspective. But this area was ravaged by civil war. It was slashed and burned to basically oblivion uh, for charcoal production, for agriculture, you name it. It was poached. I mean, the rebel army had to feed themselves. And so the bushmeat poaching that occurred there literally wiped out all wildlife. Big game animals, anyway, for sure. Uh, so fast forward to present day, and uh, a group of like-minded hunters and conservationists have taken that property over and <laughs> to say that they have reinvigorated it and, and restored the native wildlife is a gross understatement. And that's what this book is all about, telling the story of sustainable use hunting and how it benefits the local community. Because that's the first thing, right? The locals have to buy in or you're dead in the water. So anyway, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. It's a great book, Bringing Back the Lions uh, by Mike Arnold. And Mike, who is uh, a lifelong hunter and outdoorsman and has lived an interesting life himself, uh, he'll be here momentarily. So uh, that's what we're going to do today. I'm excited about it. You guys know I love Africa. Uh, before we take a quick break, though, how about a giveaway? And uh, last week we did one from my friends over at Protect. I've still got some more Protect swag to go through. So a Yeti tumbler, a uh, Protect Axis Deer t-shirt, and we'll throw in two bags of their uh, natural energy packets that are liquid, so they're not going to gunk up your, uh, your water bottle. Uh, I take them before I go to the gym. Absolutely love them. Effective for hunting. You know, you're we can get tired in the tree stand. Uh, you want to stay alert? Bam, take one of these. And it's natural caffeine, no added sugars, stuff that uh, isn't 
going to cause you to crash. I'm a big fan, like I said. Uh, so just email the word conservation, that's conservation, to Lone Star Outdoors Show at gmail.com, and you are entered into this week's Protect giveaway. Up next, we'll bring back the Lions with writer Mike Arnold on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. I'm surrounded by forever, but I don't have any time left to wander in amusement, left to ride my breath is dying. If you're looking for a thermal hog hunt near DFW, then Three Curl Outfitters has you covered. Offering fully guided thermal hunts just minutes south of Dallas, guide scout daily to put you on the bacon. Using thermal imaging technology to hunt feeders, crop fields, and river bottoms, you get unlimited hogs and no kill fees. Visit www.3curl.com. Also offering corporate hunts and food and lodging available by request. Book at 3curl.com or call 214-455-0940. In the market for a compact track loader, check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at one of our nine North Texas locations. Visit BobcatOfNorthTexas.com or call 469-586-0000 today. Cable Smith, welcome everybody back into SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. Thanks for dropping by today as we're all set to head over to the Dark Continent to get into this book, Bringing Back the Lions, written by Mike Arnold, who is here with us. Uh, but before we dive into that conversation, this segment brought to you by SCI, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. Actually, Mike just got back from Mozambique, where SCI was hosting an international council uh, on wildlife conservation and management. And the thing about SCI is they talk the talk, but they back it up. They walk the walk as well. They put their money where their mouth is when it comes to sustainable use hunting, to protecting your rights as a sportsman. They do it both domestically and internationally. For more info, check us out at Safari Club. Dot org, And with that being said, let's bring him on right now. This interview has been a long time in the making. We had it scheduled. It ended up, uh, I think one of us was sick. I don't remember. And then uh, I took off for Wyoming and Mike left for Africa. So here we are, uh, better late than never. Well, Mike, thanks for joining us today. This is take two because uh, as I just told you, I forgot to hit the record button. And that actually has happened before. Not uh, any time recently, but you know, as the host, you look down and you're like, "Why is that? Why is it not recording?" Oh, you're an idiot. So anyway, uh, thanks. Take two. Thanks for being here, Mike. It's great to visit uh, with you. It's it's wonderful to be here, and I like listening to your voice so much. It's just <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> well, they say I have a face for radio, so I'm glad that you are at least enjoying that. Uh, now you're joining us from Georgia. Uh, is that where you're from originally? 
No, I'm from Abilene, Texas. Uh, grew out, grew up, I grew out, grew up outside of the city, actually, in a little bitty place called Elmdale, right off of I-20. Okay. And uh, we were in the country, uh, raised four horses, did a whole lot of things like that, uh, hunted and fished. Uh, my dad introduced me to shooting and hunting, um, killed my first whitetail when I was five, not in that area. We didn't have deer in that area when I was growing up in the Abilene area. And now it's, they're all over the place there. Yeah. I was telling you, my buddies are in Buffalo Gap and like yeah. every evening these deer and, and they live in like a, you know, kind of a, well, Buffalo Gap, I would say is rural anyway, but they live in a neighborhood yep. and these deer just come out of the woodwork everywhere. And I don't, I don't know where they stay during the day, but there's a lot of deer around there. Well, I scared a, a doe here out of the big old doe, and she had a bag on her, so she's got some fawns sitting down in somewhere over here. But I scared her when I got up the other morning. So we we have to say I love seeing them. I can mm -hmm. I can watch whitetail. It doesn't have to be a buck. I just love them because they were my first big game animal. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, the one I shot in San Saba was a doe, and she was probably the size of a over large. Jackrabbit. It, right. <laughs> I'm probably misremembering how big she yeah. was, but she she represented. Um, you know, they talk about totems. She really represented a totem for me. She uh -huh. was she was my first big game animal. They drove her to me. You know, on this, uh, everybody chipped in and said, "We're not going to shoot it. This little five year old doesn't have a deer yet." So anyway, it was it was a sweet sweet memory. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so then you went to Texas Tech. I did. Yep. We moved to Lubbock. I uh, say so we, my wife and I moved, we met in Abilene in high school, believe it or not. And uh, we moved to Lubbock, did my undergraduate there and my uh, master's. And then we headed overseas to Australia for six years where I did my PhD and my first research position postdoc is what they call them. So. Uh -huh. Interesting. So what years were you in Australia? We were there from 82 to 87, beginning of 82 to the end of 87. So that was before they had their big like gun buyback thing with the, the mass shooting that they had in the 90s. Yeah, exactly. There was, uh, we knew, we still know them though. Actually, we know a lot of target shooters there uh, who do a lot of wonderful competitions there and um we didn't i did not take any of my firearms with me i just didn't want the hassle but we had them available to us there mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well it's probably it's changed a lot from the time that you were there to today no doubt it is um, and i've interviewed guys from australia uh that have to predator hunt with an over under side by side because they can't have a mm -hmm. semi-automatic yeah crazy yeah but, yeah, uh, but anyway, okay. So then you, now you're at the university of Georgia. I am. I'm a professor in the genetics department. I went nuts and told him I would do the head of the genetics department for a year as an interim. So that's what I'm doing right now as well. Uh, the, the wonderful part of it is that, you know, conservation through, uh, sustainable use, i.e. through trophy hunting, uh, is one of the topics that, that I write about a lot for various magazines and, and a recent book that you know about and that sort of thing. And so uh, it's conservation biology, and that's what I've done a lot of my career. And so this actually 
the university is real happy with me being able to reach into that and try to bridge the gap between geeky academics like me and and uh, the real people out there who are the hunters and the conservationists who are actually putting their money where their mouth is. Right. What about that term trophy hunting? Um, um, yeah. I think it has a negative stigma attached to it. And it, it is unwarranted because, well, a trophy is in the eye of the beholder, first of all. But for me, as, as I am a trophy hunter, and I'm proud to say, like, I'm going after the oldest, most mature male. And a byproduct of that is he's probably going to have the biggest headgear, okay? Which is what I want to put on the wall. But I'm trying to outsmart the one that is at his peak or past his peak of in prime of like breeding. Um, and and you're matching wits with one that's outsmarted hunters before you. Uh, so that, you know, the experience taking that mature animal and then the headgear is a bonus. But that's a, that's a trophy. I think people that aren't hunters have turned that word into something nasty. You know, it's interesting at this forum, they were talking about trying to rebrand. And one of the things that they wanted to rebrand over there, this was all these African leaders from, gosh, countries all over the place. Ever, you just returned from Mozambique? Was that where you? Correct. Yes, Mozambique. I was in... Sadly, I didn't get to hunt. So uh, I was in a uh, five-star hotels conference room. I would have rather been in the bush, but it was cool. But I got to meet all these leaders and they were talking about rebranding, you know, to try to help people understand what we mean by sustainable use. Or I call it, look, I, I, I call it conservation through trophy hunting because that's exactly what it is. Right. And community development through trophy hunting. That's what it is. You know, our communities in North America and the U.S. in particular because of the Pittman-Robertson Act, because people like us are going out and hunting, we have a lot of money pouring into the states every year, you know. And so we have billions of dollars coming through from our pockets into as hunters and shooters. So I'm not embarrassed by it and I am not ashamed of it. I'm like you, you know, I think that I told them at this conference, I said, you know, you don't need to rebrand. We just need to explain what we do. We need to explain where that money is going and how, what percentage of the animals are actually being taken, you know, in Katata 11 that I wrote the book about, 45,000 Cape Buffalo, and they take 120 bulls a year. Mm. Now, do the math, you know, right. I mean, and but those 120 bulls pump protein into the community, but they also pump tens of that. Well, you and I both know, right? I mean, they're, they're worth hundreds of thousands of dollars mm. for the local community because they're getting 20% right off the top. So, so it's that sort of thing that I, really excited to tell people about who are not hunters. Any hunters are not going to be convinced. And you and I don't have to be convinced and your listeners don't have to be convinced because we're on the other side of that. But my wife, who is a non-hunter, not an anti-hunter, she's gone on all my safaris and been my videographer and photographer, but she doesn't have any desire whatsoever to hunt. She just doesn't. She loves shooting. Uh, especially PDWs at uh, old cars for some strange reason. <laughs> that is one of her favorites. But uh, she loves shooting, but she just doesn't have a desire to hunt. 
And so it's, she is the one that I like to picture that I'm writing to, you know, not an anti-hunter, but a non-hunter. It's the same as my wife. She'll, she'll go. She, now we have three kids, young kids that want to go to the deer lease all the time. So uh, naturally my wife wants to go to the deer lease to be a part of everything. No interest in, in killing anything herself, but uh, likes being outdoors and, and likes eating everything that I shoot or the kids shoot. So uh, she, I don't think she envisioned this being her life, but uh, she's embraced it. So uh, she's a good sport and also puts up with me going on all of these exploits uh, to places like Africa, uh, somewhere that you've been multiple times. And um, I do want to take a break. We'll come back and we'll pick it back up with how you initially were bitten with the Africa bug. That segment brought to you by Mossberg Firearms and the Patriot lineup. Uh, if you're headed to Africa for dangerous game, check out the 375 Ruger and the Patriot. It's what I shot my Cape Buffalo with. And you can find the entire Patriot lineup at Mossberg.com. We'll be right back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Eisenhower sent him more. He kept her picture in his pocket that was closest to his heart and when he hit shore. Must have been a target for the gunman. It's time to tell you about Protect products. Veteran-owned and made in the USA, Protect makes your water work harder for you in the field. They have a hydration electrolyte formula for endurance and replenishment. It's perfect for elk hunting, right? Uh, energy formula for when you need an extra kick. Immunity for optimizing the immune system. And one of my favorites, the rest formula to ensure deep sleep and proper recovery. All the formulas are liquid, so they mix instantly in your water bottle or camelback. And the cool thing is, they don't gunk them up like a powder with that messy residue. They also have an easy-to-use line of mineral sunscreen for quick and odorless application and all-day protection in the field. For more info, head over to Protect.com to see their entire lineup. That's Protect, P-R-O-T-E-K-T.com. Hey guys, Cable here for Cryo & More, the one-stop feel-good shop in McKinney, Texas. I've been going there for over a year now. All your holistic healing needs with cold, heat, and compression therapy services. And these services, they're the fastest way that I've found to reduce inflammation and to get to the root cause of pain. You don't need to be in pain, though, in order to benefit from these services. Cryotherapy helps with burning calories, optimizing sleep, boosting energy, and much more. I can tell you that's true because I feel like a brand new man every time I get out of the cryo chamber. Uh, plus, compression therapy helps promote healthy blood flow. Come in anytime before 1 o'clock, 1 p.m. Monday through Saturday. Say the words cold outdoors and you'll get $10 off your cryo session. That's cryoandmore.com. Little American Aquarium bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith riding shotgun with you as always. We've still got outdoor writer and uh, passionate African big game hunter conservationist Mike Arnold here with us today. 
We'll get back into that conversation in just a second. This segment is brought to you by StealthCam and the Reactor Wireless Cell Camera. One of my favorite, well, I guess it's part of my ritual, but uh, in the mornings when I take care of that, uh, you know, after the coffee hits type deal, and I'm sitting there, I'm checking my StealthCam command app to see what's uh, coming through game trails or hitting the feeder. I love it. I do it every day, multiple times a day. Uh, both look at the camera and do that other thing. Uh, but you can find the uh, reactor as well as the fusion and their entire lineup of trail cameras right there at stealthcam.com. Uh, all right, well, let's get back into it with Mike Arnold. Mike, when did you first get the bug to hunt the dark continent? Well, um, if you'll bear with me for a second, this is going to sound a little bit uh, morbid, but it's not intended to be. 2017, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer and I was given a year to live. So I went through a bunch of surgeries and and the chemical treatments and all that sort of thing. And it, it whacked me around. And my brother, my older brother by five years, by the way, who is in Mozambique right now hunting and I hate oh, wow. him. he's in katana 11 i convinced him to go across there where i love hunting but anyway um he called me and said look you know why don't we go hunt he could tell i wasn't feeling well and i we talked about hunting in the west because we both love the western uh western u.s Mm -hmm. Uh, hunted elk multiple times black bear you know pronghorn you name it mule deer so anyway, we uh, talked about that. And then I said, you know, you've been to, he had been to Africa once, uh, to South Africa. And I said, what about if we go to Africa, if I can get strong enough? Well, 2018, I went on my first trip and that was to South Africa uh, and a wonderful safari. Goodness gracious, just a, a magnificent safari. And then from that time on, I've gone multiple times each year uh, back to Africa to various places. Uh-huh. So. Okay, so you've explored it a little more than I have. I've been five times, but it's all been to the Eastern Cape of South Africa. So those darker corners are, they're pulling at my heartstrings a little bit. Uh, But I think, you know, South Africa is where everyone goes to dip their toe in the water. Well, uh, South Africa, we were in the Eastern Cape as well. I mean, let's face it, Cable, we could, you could never go anywhere else but the Eastern Cape. And it's so species rich. Oh, yeah. That it's hard to, I mean, it's hard to shoot it out, right? I mean, it's right. hard to collect every trophy species that they have there. And yeah. I sure have. So I'm going to end up back in the Eastern Cape again. In fact, I'm going next June, believe it okay. or not. And I'm going, uh, I'll, I'll miss you. I'll be there the last week of May. Okay. Yeah. I'll see you at the airport bar. Uh, <laughs> but you, you took a leopard. So that yes. is something that. I think there's a few permits in South Africa, but I, that's like at the top of my bucket list. I'm going to have to go somewhere else to get that. Yep. Um, I went to Namibia to get mine and, and it was a boy, it was a sweet hunt out in the middle of nowhere. So mm. I got that and a, a, I'm looking at my leopard right now over your head. And I'm also looking at the hide off of the mountain zebra that I got and, and the, the, little springbok over there that I got in the Damara springbok. So I uh, didn't take a lot there. I also mm-hmm. took a picnic while I was in Namibia because I'm trying to collect all the tiny tens. So, okay. So how many do you have now? Nine. And I don't want to talk about what I don't have because I know darn good and well, you probably have shot one and it's a steambok. The most it's a steambok. Common... They yeah. just run around everywhere in the Eastern Cape. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> See, oh my, God. my brother even, you know, this is how nice he is to me. Uh, he said, look, I've got two. I'll sell you one. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody yeah. seems to have multiple Steve box. But my very first African animal, I wrote a, an article about this called The Strangest Client because I was called that. My very first African trophy was a Volrebok. Wow. First species I shot in Africa. We went up in, they picked me up at the airport. We drove up into the mountains in the Karoo mm -hmm. and I hunted a volley and got him. He's, he's very big. So, you know, I didn't even know at the time how big he was really, how large he was compared to normal ones, but he's, yeah. So he was my first species, but the, another PH asked me, expecting, I think, Impala or normal stuff, you know, hey, what was your first African trophy when I got back to the main property and I told him the volley and he did a spit take. So <laughs> the strangest client. <laughs> My college roommate has gotten into hunting later in life, um, has done very well in the business world. And now he has the means to play around. And he went to Africa with me last summer and his first animal was a Cape Buffalo. Spoiled, and he we got there and we had a few drinks the first night and he was he didn't even go hunting the first day he was too hungover he didn't want to go and the ph was like what do you want to do today and he's like oh uh, let's go get a buffalo he's like maybe maybe an impala would be better you know <laughs> no so they went they hunted buffalo for a couple days and that was the first thing he he got uh, crazy though, but the Steenbuck, they are, they do run around everywhere, but the one that I shot, um, it was really cool. Cause it turned out to be a, an awesome hunt. We got up on this rocky ledge and he was like down in a, they call them the lands, but really their fields. Mm -hmm. And he was in like a wheat field, but bedded down, no shot opportunity. He had to stand up and it took, I'm not kidding two hours for him to like finally stand up and I'm laying there prone, like my back's cramping up. Finally, the pH is like, he's standing up, he's standing up. And, uh, and, and these things probably weigh, what would you say? 25, 30 pounds oh, at the most. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and in these like 400 yards away and you got to make this perfect shot. I mean, it was cool and ended up dropping him, but what did you, very, use? uh, I shot him with a 300, no, a seven mag, seven mag. Which they think, oh, you don't want to shoot these little animals with these big calibers, but yeah, you do because you want the bullet just to go right through them yep. and not blow them up. So you really have to pay attention to uh, your your bullet and rifle combo. Mm -hmm. uh, so that well, I mean, uh, my buddy shot his blue diker with the three seventy five H and H. Yeah, that's like twenty yards. Good. Yeah, it's yeah. really good because it's just going to go right through and not open up. Yep, yep. Um, so let's talk about the zambezi delta because anyone familiar with the safari community or you know international travel if you've if you've watched nat geo and some of these things you probably have heard of the zambezi delta um but the zambezi river is more significant than that it's it actually flows through uh, a bunch of countries it starts in the congo and through angola zambia uh, borders Namibia, botswana Zimbabwe before reaching Mozambique and eventually emptying out in the Indian Ocean. But there are very two significant uh, hydroelectric power plants on the river that provide power to Zimbabwe, Zambia, and uh, South Africa and Mozambique. So these this river is extremely important 
you know, obviously for us as, as hunters and conservationists, we love it, but um, yeah, talk about that. And, and, and you hear about the Delta is the Delta specifically in the Mozambique stretch of the river or where is that like geographically? Yeah. Mostly what you're looking at is South of the river uh, and the Deltaic area it does spread to the North a little bit as well. Uh, the river also is a biological, I, I, you and I were chatting about this earlier, but I, I forgot to mention it's a bio- on take one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a biological boundary. So to, to give you an idea, I shot my sable antelope in Mozambique uh-huh. and it's called a common, right? I mean, it's just supposed to be the normal sable antelope. It's south of that river, north of the river are Roosevelt sable, which are smaller uh-huh. and browner. Okay, beautiful. But I mean, they're smaller and browner. When the Zambezi is in the dry season, it's just a trickle and those things move back and forth. And I'm almost positive to what they have right there in the area that I hunted mine, which was a beautiful black sable with 42 inch horns or something. I mean, it was a beautiful animal. But they're still a little smaller, and I bet you any amount of money they're hybrids. And I work on hybrids as a geneticist, so I love it. <laughs> you know, if right. it's hybrid, that would be just fine with me. So it's it's also a biological boundary for a lot of distributions of things that we like to hunt, which is interesting. But also, the deltaic area is so rich. Um, think of southern Louisiana, where you have the mouth of the Mississippi. It used to before the you know, Corps of Engineers got a hold of it. Uh, it used to flood every year. Now it still floods some, we see that. And of course that was devastating for the human populations down there. But what happens when it floods, quote unquote, you know, goes over its banks, it takes all that silt and lays it down. And that's why that area is so rich at in uh, Southern Louisiana still to this day, even though it doesn't silt up as much, but that Delta region near the Zambezi River, i.e. where it's about to go out into the ocean, it spreads out there and it forms this unbelievably uh, rich soil, plant life, animal life area. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the hydroelectric dams have affected its flow a little bit, but not like, you know, say the Mississippi River or something Mm -hmm. like that. Okay. Um, generally speaking, I mean, it's, so it's a wildlife oasis, just like, you know, I love, I love, uh, Louisiana redfish and crabs and uh, the duck hunting. I mean, all that, when you first experienced the Zambezi Delta, was it on a hunting trip or was it to, you know, to undertake this project, um, bringing back the lions, this book that that we're going to talk about? Yeah, it was both and. So uh, we spent months there last year. I was supposed to go in 2020. All <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. And I still, you know, I held on to my tickets as long as I could. And of course, Mozambique stayed closed uh, all through the end of the year. Uh, the only country that opened up was Namibia. And one of my buddies there, that's how I ended up hunting my leopard there is because my buddy was really struggling. They opened up Namibia. He's an outfitter there, Jamie Trout, and I hunted with him. Uh, Now, you know, it was wonderful, and I felt terrible about it at one level because they were giving away these, you know, fairly inexpensive hunts, but they needed the cash. So anyway, so I went to Namibia. So last year, we went, we, my wife and I went 
for the first time for, uh, you know, I mean, we went month for months, but we went in May and then we went back in July. I was heading back in December. Fortunately, I'd collected everything I needed for the book. I was going back in December and the Friday before I was supposed to leave, our president, our current president, shut Southern Africa down and I could get there, but I couldn't get home. Uh, if you remember, Omicron came out. And so he decided that uh, under advisement that he wasn't going to let anybody back in. I don't think he's decided anything. I think <laughs> I'm trying to be nice here now, Cable. We're you... living in a weekend at Bernie's, like in real life. Like who's <laughs> back there pulling the strings for this moron? Oh, <laughs> so anyway, that happened. So I had to cancel that trip. But fortunately, we've been over there. I, I got the funniest thing we did while we were over there is, believe it or not, the TED organization, you know, TED Talks, they asked me to give two TEDx talks on conservation through trophy hunting. And uh, sure, so we filmed them over there because they were only doing virtual ones. So we filmed them in camp and then in an abandoned village was the second one. And I was able to have those posted and they went up onto the TED site and people really seemed to appreciate them. So that was one of the weirder things we did. But you while mentioned the you use this term trophy hunting, yes, which which I uh, I think has in modern times it, it has a negative stigma attached to it. It's not warranted. I'm a trophy hunter. I'm proud to say it. Um, to me, that means you're you've matched wits with the oldest mature male of a species, one that's probably at his peak or past his prime as far as breeding is concerned, one that's been pursued by hunters before you, and the the headgear the antlers or horns are just a byproduct of his age and his wit and and so i'm proud to say i'm a trophy hunter but and and i think a lot of it is social media but the other side has taken that word and twisted it into something that's nasty yeah i i think that what we can do as hunters um is to communicate to the non-hunters not anti-hunters but non-hunters what we mean by trophy. Uh, my wife was amazed when she went on safari with me uh, to Mozambique the two times for the weeks and weeks and weeks we were over there. The very first animal I took on the first safari was uh, one of the, what's called a pygmy antelope. It was a Sunni. Mm -hmm. And he had a big chunk out of the bottom of one of his horns. He was blind in one eye. <laughs> I mean, he was, he was at the end of his days i mean it was obvious when we and the uh, ph knew it mm -hmm. i could have gotten one with longer horns probably sharper horns but i wanted the old ones uh same way with the bush buck i got on my second safari when i was there this old guy didn't have a scrap of hair on his forehead he was you know it was like leather and um and his ears were were just bald and his horns could have were real long, but I mean, they were still worn down some. So, yeah. yeah, I think also, though, we need to communicate. Okay, we go over there and we're hunting in this area. The carbon footprint, this is one of the things that my friends in academics and biology love to talk about. The carbon footprint that hunters lay down is non-existent compared to, say, photographic tourism. And I have nothing against photographers. My wife is one and I love photographing stuff. But for a, for example, a viable photographic safari area in Africa, 
is torn up. It, it just mm-hmm. is. It's, it's crisscrossed with roads. The boreholes that they have drilled are draining the water table down to get the animals to come to certain spots so we can photograph them. It has huge amounts of places for folks to stay compared to a hunting camp. And so it's that footprint is huge. And I think people need to understand that's one benefit of hunting, but the other benefit in these rural areas, and this is, you know, this, this time I've, I was in Mozambique recently because of this conservation forum, the African locals need this money to improve their quality of life, to get protein to their kids from the animals that are taken, for example, but also protein to their kids, carbohydrates to their kids, fields and things like that, that they can develop clinics, schools, et cetera. They don't have any other means of income except bushmeat trade, i.e. poaching. But do you hear all the time, uh, at least I do, that these, oh, there's this guy called The Real Tarzan. And he has an Instagram page, hundreds of thousands of followers. And he's always interacting with like lions and tigers and, you know, pythons that are twice the size of you and me. And he says stuff like trophy hunting is BS. Those communities do not need the money. It's basically white imperialism where they're, you know, have these uh, locals that work for them for pennies on the dollar. Um that that message is out there too. I've seen it firsthand. I shot a Cape Buffalo. We took the Buffalo, half of it, to a school that was paid for by hunters where there was a well drilled for the kids, paid for by hunters. I played soccer on a field that was paved and leveled with machines paid for by hunters. And the kids and the teachers sang and danced in appreciation for that protein. So yeah. I know that I know that 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 message is out there, but it's a lie. Well, and it it really is. And uh, you know, the ironic thing is, is real Tarzan a black guy? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't think. I don't think. He uh, is. I bet he's white. Yeah. So let me let me tell you what I was interacting with some Tanzanians um, from. You know, they were from the government agency that does sustainable use, the hunting concessions and all this. Uh And I apologized to them. And what I said to them was for my country. And I said, and for the anti-hunters, because at this forum, one of the things that came across over and over and over again was the, that what the black Africans needed to do was to unify and they are, and to get the message out there that their communities are in desperate need of hunter dollars. And these are not, you know, folks over here guessing what the black Africans need. And ironically, when I was talking to him, I said, you know what this really looks like to me. And, and the guy from Tanzania said racism and imperialism. And I said, yeah, tell him you how to use your resources. Right. Exactly what the real Tarzan is doing. That's exactly what our anti-hunters are doing. That's exactly what our government is doing right now, trying to get trophy bans in. I hate it. It it is racist and imperialistic to dictate to them how they have to manage their own wildlife. We gave them the playbook. We said, here's the model that works for us. Look Mm -hmm. around the world. There's not one that works better. Here it is. Utilize it. 
Yeah. They said, okay, we're going to do that. 10 years later, we're like, no, we don't, that's not good enough. Now we want to tell you how to do it. We, you know, well, and the, the real the, Tarzan is, is he does look like he's African-American though, but uh, this is, and just to put him into perspective, this guy killed a monster crocodile had to be ancient. And he goes on today's episode of stupid humans. These guys from Texas decided it was a good idea to track down a legendary Nile croc. They heard rumors of, so they killed it. Sad world we live in, man. The dinosaurs survived hippos, other crocs, snakes, lions, leopards, but the human was the one to take it out. Shame on us. <laughs> well, I'm I'm real sorry that right, that he, but he's explo- who's exploiting. He's he's running around with these caged animals, you know, making a living doing that. Saying it's just hypocrisy at its finest. And it is, but you know, the thing about it is, we can, I believe, turn the narrative around. Uh, and once again, we're not going to convince people like him and we're not going to convince PETA and we're not going to convince certain groups of folks. But that's not our goal, right? It's right. not even to turn non-hunters into hunters, I don't think, although that is wonderful if we can, especially if they're young, you know, young ones, uh, young kids and that sort of thing. I love to see that. But it's really to communicate why at the end why it works for ecosystem restoration and recreate and recreation and why it works for community development, why this model works and why we should not be telling there's a, you may have seen the meme. I was talking to Larry Weishan a couple of three weeks ago and he brought it up from Facebook where these three or four black Africans are sitting around a, a campfire out in the middle of the bush. And one of them turns to the other and says, you know what I think they ought to do with their white tailed deer in Texas. Right. Yeah. I've seen that. Yeah. How would we take that? How would we take that? We would be royally pissed, but yet we're doing it to them. And it, it is absolutely racist. Yeah. You're, you're, Modern day colonialism at its finest. Uh, let's knock out a quick break here. Mike, when we come back, I want you to talk a little bit about the invisible line. It's something that you could very clearly identify from the air when flying over this region of Mozambique. And uh, it's pretty telling when you talk about the implications on conservation and sustainable use hunting. That segment of the show brought to you by Vortex Optics. Check out the new fall lineup of Vortex Wear if you haven't already. I just got a shipment in, and the new fall lineup kicks ass. I love the hoodie, the fleece. Uh, got a brand new cap as well, but there's a ton more stuff as the fall lineup is available now. You can find it at vortexoptics.com. Save 20% off your order with that promo code LONESTAR20 when you check out. We'll be right back with more on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Sending you this postcard to tell you that I'm fine. And let you know wherever I go, you never leave my mind. Wow. We live in crazy times when it comes to censorship on social media. And if you're a gun owner and a hunter, and if you're proud of those things and you post about those things, then you're already on the blacklist. You're getting censored. You might not even know it. Take it from me. I had my Instagram page deleted for an entire month for no reason last year. Mm-hmm. Guess what? That kind of stuff doesn't happen over at Go Wild. It's a community of people who love to hunt, fish, and cook their wild game. They also love guns. If you want to be a part of that kind of place where you're not getting censored, where they actually promote posts with that kind of content, just go to download Go Wild. It's a free app. 
I absolutely love it. You'll see me there posting every day. So come on, join the conversation at Go Wild. I'm Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, a full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Let's face it, guys. We all would love to own land, right? But they're not making any more of it. However, there's a solution. Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping its borrowers finance their own piece of paradise for over 100 years. Whether you want it for recreating, ranching, fishing, hunting, or just to get the hell out of Dodge for the weekend, visit Lone Star Ag Credit today to start making that dream a reality. Cable Smith welcoming everybody back into SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg Firearms. We've still got outdoor writer Mike Arnold on the line, and we'll get back into that conversation concerning his book, Bringing Back the Lions, momentarily. Uh, Interesting stuff. But before we do that, this segment is brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy and Black Rifle Coffee. Veteran-owned America's Coffee Company. Uh, you can find them, well, all of their roast and unapologetic swag at BlackRifleCoffee.com. Uh, all right. Well, Mike, uh, before the break, I mentioned this term in the book, the invisible line. I thought it was a, a great illustration as to the positive impact of sustainable use hunting. And I'm going to let you kind of take the ball and run with it and explain what that exactly means. You know, what what happened was uh, the very first time we flew in, uh, and I'm looking forward to going back to Katata 11 next year, hopefully to do a write-up for Sports Afield on cheetah reintroduction there. But as we were flying in, you, you come in in a helicopter from Byra, from the Byra airport where, that you've flown into. And as you come from the Byra Airport and head towards that Zambezi Deltaic area. What you're doing is you're heading towards not just one hunting concession, and it's Portuguese language is katata, okay? It just means hunting concession. So there's a series of katatas there. Now, I was heading for katata number 11, okay? Mark Haldane's katata number 11 or Zambezi Delta Safari's katata 11. But as you're going, it is just bare. It is bare earth. There are uh, a few huts scattered around, you know, grass, palm leaf covered huts scattered around with a little bit of fire coming up. And then you notice that there is a haze out there. And so I asked my pilot, what's up? He said, that's charcoal production. And so what they've done in that area is cut every tree down. And they turn it into charcoal for the folks living in the cities. And as you're flying, all of a sudden, you hit a wall of vegetation, i.e. the canopy of a forest. 
The invisible line that we're talking about there is that line and what causes it to be there. The line between total devastation of habitats, of animals, of course, nothing is living out on that bare, you know, as far as you can see, uh, except for a few humans. So, and there are a few animals like goats and, and cattle, I suppose, in some of those areas. And so you hit that line and the invisible line is when you get down into the katadas, you find out that that line represents a demarcation, a, a, a cutoff from hunter-gatherer and slash-and-burn agriculture and a middle-class Sena villager who now has plenty of protein, so he doesn't, he and she don't need to poach for their kids or themselves. They have plenty of protein coming in. They have infrastructure built like you said by hunters everything is is you know is paid for by hunters mm -hmm. now these and they they employ you know this guy's talking about pennies on the dollar the rule in mozambique and elsewhere is you have to pay them just like we do here it's minimum wage or higher and they pay them high okay so well, it's, and they get tips and and if one of them gets fired the line's going to form to the left to rip to take that job because i asked him i said do you i've asked through translator asked my tracker do you like this job does it pay well because i wanted to know are we exploiting these people personally and he, and he was like i love this job it's the best job i've ever had you know i can feed my family uh i i have a place to live you know uh not in extreme poverty like you see a lot of the third world by their standards they're living high on the hog yep well, to give you an example too, just health-wise, so Mozambique has the high, one of the highest, if not the highest, I can't remember now. It has forty-six percent um, malnutrition among like zero to five-year-old kids. Okay, across the country, in those katadas, it's zero. Okay. Now that malnutrition, you see the swollen bellies and photos and that sort of thing. That's called kwashiorkor. That is protein deficiency. Everybody's like, oh, we need to, you know, help them be able to plow up land and plant maize. They don't need maize. Right. They need protein. They need meat. And in their case, and it's going to be in the case of Katata 11, they even put in a fishing program and they did it wisely. No nets. You know, you have to fish for them with hooks and that sort of thing, no nets. And you have to get a little disc that says you have a fishing license. You don't have to pay for it, but you have to have it so that they don't have fish poachers coming through. Okay. So they need protein. And that's what the hunters are paying for. They, you know, eight cubic metric tons or whatever of, of meat that they give out every year and then their fishing program. The people are well-fed. Now, do they have an agricultural field that's also paid for by hunters? Absolutely. You know, they put it in in a centralized location, and then they also put in a clinic. They put in a school. All of it paid for with yours and my dollars. Right. Okay. And they asked people if they would voluntarily move from their scattered villages in this katata to this centralized location. They didn't tell them they had to. They didn't bring in the police or army. Everybody wanted to move there because they had the centralized. They knew, first of all, they were being fed well, but they also had a centralized area. If they wanted to set up a little shop, they could do it, which they've done and pay for it with their earnings from Zambezi Delta Safari and the hunters that are going over there. 
but they have this agricultural field plowed by a tractor bought by the Michigan Safari Club International with a huge old plow. They plow this 186, something like that acre field three or four times a year, depending on how many crops they want to make, rice and maize. So anyway, you know, I, I look at it and I go, this is not unique, though. You were talking about the model. This isn't unique. It's, it's happening in Cameroon. It's happening in Tanzania. It's happening in Uganda. It's You name it. It's happening in South Africa. Okay. I mean, this is, this model is penetrating into those local rural populations and changing their lives in community development. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt. I mean, like I said, I've seen it firsthand. Um, why did the wildlife disappear from Kutata 11 because in the book you reference like 30 years ago what it was like yes and and then and that in the name of the book is bringing back the lions so um what what happened and how did how did it get to such a bad place well uh, so there was a war of independence from portugal and that didn't last very long portugal pulled out uh like most you know is similar time to Rhodesia and, and other places that folks were pulling out of, and rightly so, okay? I'm not standing here or sitting here suggesting that the Portuguese shouldn't have pulled out. But when they pulled out, a civil war broke out. And so it was a 15-year civil war, and it was that Zambezi Delta area, okay, and the Katadas along in the Maromeo complex were known from hunters back in the 1960s, like you and me, if we were old enough to have been there, we would have known it as one of the most game-rich areas. I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of animals of various kinds, mm -hmm. buffalo, cape buffaloes, and sable antelopes, and zebras, and you name it. So the locals knew it too, and the rebels went into that area and set up a meat processing plant to feed their armies that were all in the bush. So the, 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 um, whatever you would call it, government armies were in the towns and cities and the rebels were out in the bush. So the rebels set up this meat processing plant and the buffaloes went from goodness gracious, the game counts right before that civil war were something like 60,000 buffaloes. They went down to 1200. The sable antelopes were in the tens of thousands. They went down to 30. The water bucks were 26, 28,000 was the last estimate. And they went down to something like 250 animals. So you had this crash. And so that's what drove it was, we can call it just mass poaching, but it was really, it was actually just a meat industry. Uh, and it was poaching, obviously, but I mean, it was a meat industry. And so when Mark Haldane and Carlos Faria took over that area as partners. Carlos, by the way, being a non-hunter and a non-fisherman, I write about him. He's in chapter one of my book. Right. And I asked him, why don't you hunt or fish? You know, you bought this area, but he's in tourism. He's into tourism. And anyway, I asked him, it's just a little anecdote. And he said, oh, it, it takes too much work. You know, it's just too, you got to get up too early. It's mm -hmm. cold, you know? <laughs> so anyway, but when they took it over in 92, they signed the peace accord in 92 as well in Rome between the rebels and the government army. 
there were just hardly any animals. And so their very first. You have a, there's a quote from the book. It says there's more bodies of dead soldiers and villagers than there were animals left in the entire Mara Mayu. Yeah, Mara Mayu. Com- Complex. Yeah, complex. Yep. That describes the devastation of this civil war. It, absolutely. And it displaced everybody. I mean, I've forgotten how many millions of folks were displaced. And of course, they lost millions as well to starvation and to battles. And so it was it was completely denuded of animals uh, that they could have eaten. Uh, the little pygmy antelope probably fared the best because the poachers wouldn't have wasted a bullet on them as much as they would have on the bigger stuff, mm-hmm. on the larger um, meat caches, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and this is just, uh, I mean, obviously the book's about Katata 11, but it's a microcosm of, of what's happened all over Africa. Yeah. Uh, and, and the recovery process is something that can can happen yes elsewhere and it is happening in places like where i've been in where i hunt in south africa has a lot of it has been clear cut for agriculture the places that have the wildlife is where hunting occurs you know that's right Uh, yeah no i mean yeah if you think about it you know i mentioned 30 sable antelopes just to give an example in 92 now they have over 3,000, probably closer to five they haven't done a game count in a couple of years so it's probably i mean they're all over the place you you this is one of the very few areas that i know of in unfenced africa that actually is just exploding with sable it's over carrying capacity for katata 11 in most of those areas right now so so what is the first step in trying to bring the wildlife back and it might not even have to do with the wildlife it might it might have to do with the people it it is and you're exactly right they they did two parallel things if you will and and these make sense i mean they're just make logical uh as logical conclusion number one they had to start feeding the people who were there they had to get that malnutrition rate down. They had to give them protein. So every time they shot a Cape Buffalo, that went straight to everybody, you know, the people there. Um, and every time they were able to hunt whatever, and they started building up, they didn't, they, they give 10 pounds of red meat. They have the fishing program right now. They give 10 pounds of red meat per family per week throughout the year, actually, uh, even during the wet season, they're out there doing stuff. So so they give that, and then they have their fishing program. Well, they didn't have that many animals to give them 10 pounds right at the start. So they gave them whatever they could, and but the population of folks were gone from that area too. So they were. it was a nice balance where um, as people moved back in, the animals were increasing. So that was the the first thing, feed the people protein, mm-hmm. give them the protein. The second thing is anti-poaching. And they started out small. Now they have a huge number of folks working on their anti-poaching squads. But then they started out with a few men who were poachers, prior right. poachers. I mean, who are you going to get to, you know, know where the snare should be, where the gin trap should be, where the poachers might be? other than those who know exactly where they ought to be because yeah. they, my ph always says that uh the best trackers are former poachers so yeah these guys are freaking amazing we went out on an anti-poaching 
uh, team training exercise my wife and I did. And it was not, I mean, they had sent somebody out there who was not a poacher. Well, he used to be and just told him hide, you know, set up a camp, hide, don't tell us where you're going. And they had to find him. And it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing watching them see a bent grass and leaf of grass and just or uh, grass and just say to us, okay, this is where he was. And I, I was blown away. I, when I shot my Inyala, it, uh, the tracking effort just to find, because they had spotted it and then he disappeared. And now and I'm trying to get into position to make a shot. And I don't know where this animal is. No clue. And they tracked the thing, not in dirt, not in mud, on rocks. And I was like, <laughs> how can you like decipher where this animal went? We're, we're literally walking in like rocks. And sure enough, this I'm just watching this tracker just pick it apart. It was amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, we, you know, there are some really good trackers here. And, and if you're a bow hunter, I bet you are one of the better. I'm not. Okay. I'm not, I'm not a good tracker at all. It, the only way I could track elk in the West is if there's snow on the ground or mud. Right. <laughs> I have a hard time. So I'm just saying we do have some good trackers here, but it's nothing like what we have over there. Yeah. Yeah. So the poaching, anti-poaching effort is second. Feed the people and then anti-poaching. Uh, was, was this area, Katana 11, wiped out of vegetation as well, or had that been left unmolested? No, it was, it was impacted by the slash and burn. Uh, I mean, it, even recently, before all of the folks decided they wanted to move to this centralized location, you come to what they call in Yala Gardens, and those are old homestead areas where they have set up their machambas, the, 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 the gardens, by burning the trees or girdling them or whatever and knocking them over. And so you'll come to these areas and they're growing back, okay, because the people have left. But it, when they came in, uh, there were large areas that were actually highly disturbed, uh, old village areas. In fact, one of the, I did the two TEDx talks there we filmed while we were there about conservation through hunting. And one of them we did in an abandoned village. And so, but it's growing back up, you know, it's regenerating. Uh, I believe our mutual friend, Ivan Carter, played a role in helping recover some of the, the larger megafauna species, specifically the lions. So at what point in the process did we get to where we're like, okay, we have enough buffalo, enough sable, enough water buck, but we can reintroduce a pride of lions to this area? Yeah. So, well, if you ask some of us, we would... Um, automatically say that that Ivan and Mark Haldane, who are good friends of mine as well, and they feature the book, obviously, as well, were just insane <laughs> to reintroduce lions. There were a bunch of us that said, you do understand. I, I gave Mark a hard, hard time on one of these safaris this last year that it, when we were there for months. And one of the lions, as I recall, nailed a big, beautiful sable bull. And I said to Mark, you know, I, I just want to point out how much is laying on the ground, right? Right. <laughs> it just got eaten by like thousands of dollars. That was from a hunter's checkbook. 
Well, see, the thing about it is, though, they're they're visionaries. Uh, Ivan and Mark and Carlos and all these Dan Cabela, you know, with and Mary Cabela, all mm-hmm. they're visionaries, and their vision is yes, recreate and raise the the quality of life of the folks who are living there, the Santa Villagers, but their their parallel vision is to have all of the species. It, it, their vision is to have all of the species that were there prior to humans coming through. And one of the species that was there were lions. Now they would occasionally get a lion in, but they're sort of what are referred to as soft boundaries. There's no fences or whatever, but you have villages and things like that. So it's real hard for a lion to get in there. So they knew if they wanted lions back, they were going to have to actually raise the finance of millions and millions of dollars uh, to be able to bring lions in from various places, six places in this case from South Africa, and to put them in and then take care of them. Okay. And that's what they did. They have 24 lions that they brought through. Now they're over 80. And that's in three years, three-ish years. Yeah, four years, I guess. Now it's bumping up against four, but 80 healthy animals. I mean, healthy pride structure, the whole nine yards. And they've so, lost a bunch of the originals. So is the goal then to also offer sustainable harvest of lions? There will be lion hunting in Katata 11 at some point in time. The deal with the uh, with Mary Cabela who is obviously the matriarch of Cabela's and she's the head of the board was that the original 24. Now she's hunted. I asked Mary, but before I say what I'm about to say, let me point out one thing. She's not against lion hunting. Right. I asked her, how many of you hunted? She said six. She said, I don't think I'll hunt another one, but so she's hunted lions a lot. Right. So she, she loves them, but she also realizes sustainable use. But her deal was, and the Cabela Family Foundation's deal was, that the original 24 would not be hunted, okay? Even though the males would get old and end up either having to be transported somewhere else or they would just die, that was, that was the deal. And they didn't want to hunt the original 24 anyway. They wanted population to build up. But no, there will be sustainable use of lions, Absolutely. I mean, that's that's the plan. So these other katatas in that region, because there are other hunting concessions there. Do they have lions? And what is how do they what is their reaction when this group says we're gonna put lions in our katata? Well, well those lions might get out. <laughs> and they do they might leave. <laughs> they do, and they bring them back. Actually, they they have a whole fleet of helicopters and vets on call and that sort of thing, and they get them back to Katata Eleven because they have collars on them, uh, the original ones anyway. And then they recollar a bunch of them as they go. No, the the hunting concessions around there were. Uh, I mean, Ivan and Mark and all of them. They all talk, and they all talked about this and about the potential for income. Okay, because. I've heard the figure 150,000 bandied about for Mozambique lion hunting. Uh, I can imagine it would be even higher, but every time you, so every time you take a a male that's not in the pride and that sort of thing, you're going to make that kind of money. Okay. And that money, once again, 20% goes straight into the Santa villagers bank account. 
Uh, so they love it. But also it then pours right back into more conservation efforts and, and that sort of thing. So, so no, they were, they were discussed with, and yes, they could get out and yes, they will eat uh, other people's game animals. That is yeah. true. Okay. What, what a massive undertaking. Um, we do need to take our last commercial break. I want to come back though and get into some of the other megafauna species, uh, leopards. I don't know if they were extirpated or if they had to be reintroduced. I know they are reintroducing cheetahs. What about things that we consider nuisances in North America by and large, like coyotes? And for all intents and purposes in Africa, that would be the jackal. Are they reintroducing them? Um, rhinos, elephants. I want to get into all that stuff after the break. That segment brought to you by Numa geared for the outdoors. It's what I wear, whether that's in the whitetail woods or Africa or any place in between. And I'm hard on my gear, guys. That apparel gets put through the ringer. And I'm sure yours does too, which is why it's so cool that Numa offers a lifetime warranty on all of their hunting apparel. That's insane, but they do it. And you can save 20% off your Numa order with that promo code LONESTAR20 when you check out at Numa. Outdoors.com. We'll be right back on the Lone Star Outdoors Turn Show. Off the seat belt sign. Bring me a scotch and a lot. Till I'm high enough to forget. Cause I ain't over Fort Worth yet. Some say a silenced gunshot is the baddest sound out there. At Silencer Central, we have another favorite. It's the sound of silence delivered to your front door. When you buy from Silencer Central, we handle your application, set you up with a free NFA gun trust, and deliver your silencer straight to you. With an average 90-day turnaround time when you use eForms, buying a silencer is simpler than ever. Visit silencercentral.com and we'll help you get started. Cable here, and if you're like me, you probably enjoy bold flavors and cuisines. And nobody does Cajun and Creole better than Chris's Specialty Foods in Frisco. Their forte includes specialty sausages, boudins, and andouille, pre-cooked soups, gumbos, and sides, where all you have to do is heat it up. What about high-quality steaks, smoked and fried turkeys, turduckins, and turduckin rolls for the holidays, plus gift boxes. Storefront conveniently located off Dallas Parkway in Frisco, or shop online at chrisspecialtyfoods.com and have it delivered to your door. Did you know that Orvis has been family-owned since its inception in 1856? Think about that. Uh, they also donate 5% back to protecting nature. Orvis and his customers have raised and donated more than $20 million to protecting nature over the past 25 years. They continue to grow a community of outdoorsmen and women with classes focused on everything from fly fishing to wing shooting and hunting dog handling from basics all the way to advanced. And don't forget about their unique fly fishing and wing shooting trips all over the world. Orvis, proudly American-made fly fishing gear since 1856. Holy ghost fire, Paul Cobbin bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg Firearms. Cable Smith here with you, as we're still visiting with outdoor writer Mike Arnold regarding his book, Bringing Back the Lions. And uh, we're going to shift from lions into leopards and other 
megafauna species momentarily, but this segment, first of all, brought to you by all seasons feeders and blinds. Rifle season almost here. That means Henry and I will be spending quite a bit of time in the big chingon. Might take the girls too, because there's plenty of room. Actually, all five of us, Aaron, all three kids, you could even throw the dog in there. It's got carpet, It's so it's quiet, which is great because, you know, the kids aren't as loud as they once were, but I'm telling you, when we first started taking them deer hunting, it's like having a herd of elephants in there, uh, but it's got shelves for their snacks, cup holders for their Gatorades, all that good stuff, windows for bow or rifle, and you can find the big chingon at allseasonsfeeders.com. All right, Mike, well, let's talk about that animal that is numero uno, on my bucket list, the leopard, is this something that, uh, you know, like the lions, they had to invest tons of time and money and other resources into reintroducing in this region of the uh, Zambezi Delta? The leopards were there, okay, okay. so, uh, but they were smaller populations. And the reason is, is because of all the snares. Uh, so they chase. So how they hunt leopards there are with dogs and at night. Uh, and some people have problems with hunting with dogs. I'm looking at my Wyoming mountain lion right now. We hunted him with a, with dogs, and it's one of the hardest bloody hunts I've ever been on in my life, chasing after dogs. And 18 it's, days uh, over three trips to Colorado to get mine. Oh, wow. Well, you yeah. know how selective it is too, right? Yeah. I mean, you get up there and it's a female and you go, whoops, nope, not going to take that one. We caught three females and and I actually ended up killing a female because it was on a, it, we were hunting public land. Mm -hmm. My third trip was in, so I wanted to do dry ground because I yeah. was like, that's really uh, cool. And then I know I'm going to be with a good houndsman if, he's, yep. if he can catch one on dry ground. So I wanted to do that. So I went, spent a week, didn't get one, called the wife like on day seven. I was like, when do you have to go back to work? She's like, don't do it. You son of a bitch. Home now. <laughs> I stayed three more days, didn't get one, went back the next December, did it in the snow when we caught three females, let them all go. And then the first day of my third trip, day 18, go onto a private ranch. This a lion had killed two foals and the landowner was like, I, you can hunt here, but you kill what you catch. Yes. I, this thing is killing my livestock and it won't stop. No. So it ended up being a female and the houndsman who's caught hundreds of lions in his life has only killed one personally him. He's like, well, either you have to kill it or I do. And I said, well, I feel like we've earned it. We did it on dry ground and there it, it's pointless for us to kill, for you to kill this one. And then we, now we have to go kill another one. I was like, this seems like the right thing. And, Oh yeah. We put the work in. So yeah, but that, uh, it, hunting with hounds, hunting with hounds, hunting big cats with hounds is, is awesome. So that's how they do it there. That is, yeah. And they do it for two, two reasons. Uh, I wrote about one of the chapters is ca called catching a leopard by the tail. And that yeah. was for darting and collaring. It was part of the Cabela family foundations work there. So they do research with the leopards but the leopard population, when they came in, and I was talking to the houndsman uh, from who's from South Africa, and I said, how do you see the anti-poaching difference? He said, well, number one, we have lots more leopards here because he goes there very, very often. They call him in for collaring or hunting. 
And when Mark Haldane first went in there, and this I mentioned this in the book, when he first went in there, he and Carlos, they had four permits from the government. The government said, uh, there's big enough leopard population for you to have four permits. They hunted for a couple of years, a couple of seasons. And Mark went back to the government and said, I need you to reduce it to two because we are not able and we think the leopard population is much smaller than you think. So he gave up, you know, $60,000 or whatever right. the heck he gave up in the early days when he needed every penny because he wanted the leopards back at a good level. So the anti-poaching has removed the snares, removed the gin traps. One of the things the houndsman said, obviously, was, okay, yes, there are more of them, but he said what we haven't seen for years now and he's been there for decades chasing these. He said, we don't find them with missing paws. We don't find them with missing legs. We don't find them with snare uh, injuries around their necks because he said they've cleaned this area out, you know, and they keep it cleaned out. And so uh, that was amazing. I hadn't even thought about that as being, a, a, but he said we would very often find, you know, whether we were hunting them or whether we were collaring them, we would find them with missing paws or whatever. So, right. Right. So that's, that's what the leopard population has increased. They're doing a good job of it. The cheetahs were not there. Okay. They were, they used to be historically, uh, but that was, they reintroduced the cheetahs last year and they've reintroduced more this year. We were there for both reintroductions last year. Hmm. Okay. And what about like, um, elephants, rhinos, stuff like that. So elephants they have there, they have, let's see, what is there? They just released, um, uh, oh, I'm going to get this number wrong. Maybe six, Mark Haldane sent me some information, six problem, uh, males, young males from another area in Mozambique. They went out and darted them and then trucked them in and released them in Katata 11. Uh, but I think they have, is it like 600 and some odd elephants, something like that in the Katata. Now that is way down because of poaching in decades gone by, but it's, it is building now. They don't hunt elephants there in that area. Uh, but they do. And okay. So you asked about Ryan. I'm sure they will eventually if the population keeps going oh, up. Absolutely. No, 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 no. I mean, it, they could, it, if this whole thing is built on sustainable use hunting in that absolutely. model. Oh, yeah. No, no, no. They won't. They will not not hunt. It's just that they the ivory is small because you're going to have to let that population, those individuals age. get older. Yeah, they're going to have to age because of the, the poaching was horrendous once again during the war, but also right afterwards. Uh, so now it's building up. So, it yeah, we'll get to that point. Black rhinos were in that area. Um, and I asked Ivan Carter when I interviewed him for his chapter in the book, I said, tell me what, what's next. And I asked Mark Haldane the same thing. And he said, well, look, what we would really like to do, three of the species we're discussing are, one of them was jackals, which should be there, but they're not. One of them is African wild dogs, which should be there and they're not. And then the other was black rhino. And I said, so which one are you going to go for? And he said, well, there are problems with all three. Right. Said, the main problem for the jackal is, he said, I I'll give, I'll ask you a question, Mike. You're writing this 
this article, these series of articles for Sports Field. And I said, yeah. He said, if you went to Diana Rupp and asked her, does she want an article about reintroducing elephants or reintroducing jackals? What do you think she would say? She said, and I, I laughed. And, and he said, the point is, uh, raising the money to move jackals in is going to have to come out of our running money. It's not going to be something we can probably go to sponsors and say, hey, we want to reintroduce jackals. He said, African wild dogs, go ahead. But African wild dogs and, and rhinos, he said, absolutely. We can get the money in a heartbeat. But the African wild dogs, how are we going to keep them safe from snares and traps that are outside of this area? And he said, until their population increases enough, because it's an alpha female who has the pups each year. Nobody else is reproducing but her. So it takes a while. And then he said, and I said, well, what about black rhino? And I thought I knew the answer. And he said, Mike, we don't have the boots on the ground for black rhino. He said, when you have the Chinese hiring mil militias to go in and get the rhino horn in these areas because it is worth more than cocaine, it is worth more than gold, more than diamonds per weight, by weight. He said, you name it, it's worth more than that. It's worth them to shoot it out with people. And he said, we have to think about that. You know, what is it going to take for us to protect the animals once they're here and with a non-fenced area? So I have two points of reflection there. Number one, my pH pays anyone on staff. 20 American dollars per jackal that they shoot it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not a fan of the jackal. But yet, just like our coyotes, the yeah. jackals aren't going anywhere, right? You can't yeah. get rid of them. You don't yeah. want to get rid of them. It's like a just never-ending game of, well, you know, it, if we do it at the right time, we can maybe make a dent and protect some species when their fawns are on the ground or whatever. Um, but you're never going to get rid of the jackal. Mm -hmm. Well, they did in Katata 11, obviously. But if there was no food there, then of course, then there's no predators there. Um, okay. But uh, but then the other thing was I, I, where I darted my rhino, which was another internal struggle for me of whether or not this was exploitation or whether it was really a viable um, hunting effort through, you know, through green hunting, we'll call it. And I told my PH, I told Carl, I was like, this is one that's really... I'm not sure about, I'm pretty tepid on whether I want to do this or not. And we talked about it. And of course we're, we're filming everything for his YouTube channel for John X safaris. And I walked away from that experience thinking, okay, uh, this is a good thing because I, you know, you want more rhinos or less rhinos. Okay. I want more. Uh, the telling point for me though, was the place I was on. I videoed uh, two lions uh, mating. And the guy, the owner of the property was like, please don't put that on social media. I was like, yeah, no problem. It's your place. But can I ask why? And he's like, well, we're one of very few properties that has lions and rhinos. We're going to put the rhino on social media. People are going to see that. And then if you put the, the lions, they're going to know where to come shoot my, poach my rhinos. Mm -hmm. And he's uh -huh. like, and what you're doing here today, you know, helps fund the anti-poaching effort surveillance that we have to have on the property 24 7 365 mm -hmm. so you know i walked away from it being like okay you know as long as the, my only thing was these rhinos are getting darted every other week you know that's problematic for me like eh. 
but they mm-hmm. weren't and they they have strict they've gotten a lot stricter on those policies and stuff and um uh, but yeah so they hate the jackals and uh anti-poaching certainly across africa anywhere that there's rhinos uh you're gonna have to have it and you're gonna it have is. to have it non-stop yep it, it really is true so so yeah, so those are the species that they're thinking about, and there are others, mm-hmm. all right, uh, that they would probably like to get back in there as well. But they just have to they have to answer questions. You know, do we first of all is the habitat there that used to be there while those animals were there? Is the habitat still there uh, that they can exist in? You know, what do the locals think about, say, for example? bringing lions in. And then uh, what do we have the money and do we have the expertise both to move them, whatever animal it is, to move them, but then also to take care of them. So Katata 11 is what we're talking about in the book, but that's just a word, like you said, for hunting concession. What about Katata 10, Katata 8, and all these other places I'm assuming exist? Mm-hmm. Are they doing similar things, or was their habitat not devastated to the you know extreme level that Katata Eleven was? That's one one question. And then, secondly, how big is this Katata, and relative? You know, are they all relatively similar in size? So, um, first off, the the first question, yeah, this whole area was devastated, and people have. I mean, and not just in the Zambezi Delta area, but in, because that's a wet area, obviously, mm-hmm. but in the dry areas around Mozambique, I mean, these areas were all poached out for the most part, if, and, you know, if there were humans around and there were during the civil war in the bush. So, uh, you know, Katata four to the South, to give you an example, is in a dry area. They've asked Mark to Paul Dane to start over again like you did in Katata 11, and there's nothing there. And it's a dry area. It should have giraffes. It should have kudu. It should have, you name it. And all it has right now are hippos and crocs. And that's what they'll live off of for, you know, hunting for a while until the rest of them build up. Now, so they were poached out. Yes. Um, Katata 11 is a half a million acres, uh, obviously. uh, But there are other Katatas there that are over a million. And there is one that was bought by a wealthy person and it doesn't allow hunting on it. And so they basically fenced it off and, you know, and are not allowing hunting on it. Uh, But the rest of them are katatas in the truest sense of the word. They're all sustainable use areas run by operators and outfitters. So they haven't like brought lines back to these other places. No, they, they, well, one of the other katatas, right, right next door is, is one of the ones that had bomas in it as well for the lions. They got, I met that operator when I was in Maputo, Mozambique for this conservation forum. And we were talking about it. I gave him a copy of my book because he's in it. You know, we're, we talk about his katata and I talk about it in a sports field uh, article about the lions uh, update on the lions. But anyway, so they helped, but then the release and where they keep the lions now, now they don't have a fence, but the, where they bring them back to, if they get out and say, get in a snare or a gin trap or something, they bring them back to 11. So, okay. Okay. 
fascinating stuff. Um, turning money into conservation. Break that down for us. It's part of the book. Yeah. So that is, that is a quote from Ivan and that is their mantra for his organization, his wildlife Alliance. And what he, what he means by that is that you have money brought in by and Katata 11, every penny is from hunters. Now it may be the Cabela family foundation who are passionate hunters and they're donating money or whatever for helicopters or Dallas Safari Club or Michigan SCI or whatever, but it's still hundred dollars. And so what that means is you have a model of, we keep saying it, of sustainable use, what I call conservation through trophy hunting, because you and I, neither one wince when we hear the term trophy, but I I'm like, how big was it? (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about it. I want to know how big were those antlers? How old was that deer? Tell me. I know. I love it. Uh, that's, that's, you know, the way I am too. Did you look at his teeth where they worn down to the gum line? That's, that's a good yes. trophy right My there. My warthog had no teeth left. Yes, he did. Yeah. So, um, but you know, so it is that sort of, uh, sustainable use model. That's what he, what Ivan is talking about, turning dollars into conservation. We can also say turning dollars into community development because that's, they go hand in hand in these right. rural areas. Okay. All right. Um, well, I got to tell you, I enjoyed the book. Thank you so much for sending me a copy. Uh, I encourage everybody to check it out. Bringing back the lions, international hunters, local tribes, people, and the miraculous rescue of a doomed ecosystem in Mozambique. I hope to get to go see that place for myself someday. And I don't know. I don't know what I'll hunt there. Maybe a leopard. Uh, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed it uh, and have equally enjoyed the conversation today, Mike. Thanks so much for making time for us. And when are you headed back over there? Uh, well, I go back June? to Africa yeah, in June uh, uh-huh. to South Africa, to the Eastern Cape. Yours in my favorite place, I think, uh, in, in South Africa. So I go back there to hunt black wildebeest. It's a, I pitched the idea to a magazine, black wildebeest. And one of those, I don't have a bush buck from there. One of those really dark, coated bush bucks. Mm. I really love to get one of those. You may have one already. I, I, do. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And so I think those are gorgeous. So I'd like to do that. And then it's called bush bucks and birds. I'm going to go up into the mountains and uh, hunt gray wings and probably down in the flats and hunt snipe. Uh, Blouser is sending me, wanted me to take a couple of firearms over and one of them was a shotgun. And I said, sure, you know, that right. So, I mean, if you're going to provide it, I'll sure as heck. Oh, it with I know me. what the price tag on some of those blousers are. So, yeah, that's. Well, uh, they're not giving me the firearms. Right. Just so you know, <laughs> I have to send them back. And I've just said that on a public. Yeah. public that's why I love Mossberg, because they don't ask me to send them back. Yeah. <laughs> there you uh, I shot. I, I've taken quite a few Mossbergs over there. I shot my uh, Buffalo two years ago with the 375 Ruger. Oh, and uh, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to hunt in in uh, May though. I haven't Carl and I haven't really talked about that. Last year we did a uh, we did a giraffe, which that's cool. That that we were very careful in telling how we told that story in the video. We even called it. I think the name of the video was "Why Would Someone Hunt Giraffe?" Mm-hmm. And it, we that we estimated that the bull that I shot was 27 years old. 
had broken off one horn. You talked about uh, an antelope you shot over there that had mm-hmm. was blind and had a big yep. chunk out of his horn. Same thing with this guy. And uh, But it's one of those species that people get all worked up about for you know, I just look at every, some animals maybe are more like aesthetically pleasing to, to look at, but it's still just an animal and they all need to be managed the same way. So they do. And people don't understand with giraffes, just as an aside, they're so destructive. They are so destructive to vegetation. They clip off the top, the crowns of trees. Yeah. <laughs> so you gotta keep their numbers down or they're going to, they're going to wipe you out. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, well, very cool. Well, safe travels uh, on on the uh, on the next trip. Like I said, we'll be crossing paths over there about the same time. And uh, and are you going to do uh, so in Georgia? What do you do to fill up your time during the fall? Are you going to do deer hunt? Do you? Yeah, I go out deer hunting. I also really love predator hunting. And so uh-huh. I have a buddy who's up in South Carolina, and and. Now I'm looking at my bobcat that he got me. Uh, and uh, so we have gone and gotten skunked literally on coyotes. He hasn't. He's shot a bunch of them. Mm-hmm. But I have shot at a couple of coyotes and missed them. I, I'm embarrassed to say with him, but uh, I'll probably go up with him when it cools off. I want to go pray. Yeah. So I'll show you real quick before we get off here. Nope. This is my. Oh, wow. Oh, well, that's my. Trying to show you my links. Right? Oh, I see it. Right yep. there. The sun's oh. kind of it's actually chasing a pine martin. And oh, that uh that oh. that pedestal rotates 360 degrees. So if I just turn oh, wow. it on, yeah, it's pretty I cool. I love it. Yeah. It's Thank nice you. to uh make your acquaintance. Like I said, uh enjoyed the book. Folks can find it, I'm sure, on Amazon, wherever. Yes. They can, or just type in bringingbacktheLions.com and that'll take them to the page where I sell it, same price as Amazon. But but anyway, they can, they're happy, welcome to do that or go to Amazon. That's right. Well, I love a good conservation success story. And this one certainly is a model, I think, that uh, can be implemented in other places. So very interesting. Thanks again for the time. Certainly enjoyed it. Thank you. So there you have it. Mike Arnold, Bringing Back the Lions. Grab a copy. Uh, maybe order one for that hunter in your life. Make a great stocking stuffer for Christmas. Uh, that segment of the show brought to you by Avalon Knives and Lone Star Ag Credit. Unfortunately, <laughs> we've gone way over today. We're out of time. Got to go. Got to get out of here. Thanks to Mike as well as all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. not a tear, but sometimes at night when the cold wind moans in a long black veil, she cries over my bones. She walks these hills in a long black veil She visits my grave when the night winds wave